It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests, and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. This week, I'm delighted and honored to be speaking with Ira Wallace, co-owner of Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, which is one of my favorite seed companies. She was named a 2019 Great American Gardener by the American Horticultural Association and is a well-known seed saver and educator. She's also the author of six books about growing vegetables in the Southeast, not to mention she's the co-founder of the very, very cool Heritage Harvest Festival that takes place each year at Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's estate in Virginia. Welcome to the podcast, Ira. Thank you for having me, Christy. I'm really excited to be among the garden nerds. <laughs> oh, wow. I, you certainly are one of them, <laughs> for sure. I was so glad that you responded to my request for an interview during the great grow along, which we both participated in. Mm -hmm. I've been dying to talk to you for years. So let's start with Southern Exposure Seed Exchange and your work there. How did that incredible company and seed, seed exchange come into being? I was not there at the very beginning. Uh, Dr. Jeff McCormick and his wife, uh, Patty Wallens, who live in Charlottesville near where we are, we were all in the Seed Savers Exchange movement. Mm -hmm. And it turned out, you know, among the seed exchangers and stuff, that not so many Southern-oriented varieties were there. So Jeff uh, made one of those little, you know, almost mimeograph catalogs the first year. And all of us who were sort of part of that movement rallied to the call and started getting involved. And Jeff grew the company for a few years. And then in 1998, I guess it was, he put a funny little ad in the paper in the, at the beginning of in Charlottesville saying, help wanted with interesting work with heirloom seeds, uh, <laughs> not very good pay, unfortunately. And we knew a little bit about Southern Exposure. So a couple of us and who had just uh, started in 1997, our co-op, well, 1993, we bought this farm, but we really got into able to garden and grow more in 1997. And we spent that winter working with Jeff in the office and grew some seed for him since this had been sort of a hobby. Mm -hmm. And a year later, he offered us the opportunity to take over as a co-op on our farm, the stewardship of Southern Exposure Seed Exchange and grow it to a company that offers over 700 varieties that are good for the Mid-Atlantic and Southeast. So it was brutal honesty that uh, <laughs> drew us to it and uh, wonderful plants and wonderful plants people that kept us going. You had a farm, so did you grow up gardening or was that an adventure in itself? Well, I did grow up gardening. I grew up with my grandmother in Tampa, Florida, and we were at the edge of town. So we had a double lot and we had a big garden. I always say, imagine yourself under the pecan tree, getting a little shade in the summer, picking some greens. It was great. She had my grandmother had been a girl and a young woman, a sharecropper, and she said, I want to own my own land. And it's something that's really been important, you know, with 
being a farmer to have your own land because then nobody can push you around. Right. You might be poor, but, <laughs> but, but you've you got food. You've got your food and you've got your own land. I know that's a, that is something that I've been learning more about is in the, in the history particularly of black farmers and how a lot of them are pushed off of their land. So, so your, your grandmother had a, had this land and did you take it over or were you, did you find your own? Well, actually I, yeah. Cause I, I live in Virginia now mm-hmm. uh, and my grandmother died the year that uh, I got out of high school. Okay. And so in many ways, you know, I got, pulled in different directions, but something that always was with me was gardening. Like at college, I got together with some friends and we started a student garden. And this is in 1966. So it was a long time ago mm-hmm. and not every school had a garden right. at that time. And so, you know, that was something. And I met people at the Selby gardens and learned sort of a little bit about seed saving, uh, just as a volunteer from when I was in college took a plant taxonomy class because one of the things you had to do was go for a walk and uh, gather wildflowers and identify them mm-hmm. every Saturday. So it was, you know, a way to be back home when home wasn't really there anymore. But that was okay because we have a nice farm and my grandmother's here in spirit, if not in body. Right. I'm sure you feel her when you're out there in the, in the soil with all the work that you do, do you have time to garden yourself or far? I mean, if, do you actually, are you growing anything for yourself right now or just seeds? <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, well, it's, it's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, myself, I think of myself as a networker. And so Southern exposure is not just a place that saves seeds, but it grows seed growers. And so we provide a platform for all kinds of other farms, products, and seeds. And in order to present them well to our customers, we have to do trials. So we grow a little bit of stuff from all of our other seed growers here on the farm. So it's kind of fun. You know, uh, it's cooperative. So we have four acres, and only a few of them are actually seed crops. Most of them are for us to eat. We also provide fresh produce to our local food bank and share seedlings with all folks in the neighborhood and donate seeds, extra seeds from the trials and so forth to all kinds of nonprofits and school gardens and things like that. That's so great. And I'm not really sure of your hardiness zone. We're in zone 7A. Okay. Uh, And you know what's wonderful about where we are in Virginia and it's kind of is that we have long hot summers that we have pretty good sized spring and fall and winter although it's cold it's not cold enough to kill the winter hardy greens so we can garden 12 I can eat fresh out of the garden 12 months a year if I get organized enough to make sure I'm not harvesting stuff when it's frozen, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because if you get up and it's frozen in the morning, you got to wait and harvest in the afternoon that day. But, um, and fortunately these days we have a high tunnel. So when the weather is really bad, we just go in the high tunnel and walk into summer. (laughs) Sounds delightful. Yeah. When I was, cause I went to the heritage harvest festival in Virginia and I just drove those roads and I thought, God, I could, 
I could absolutely live here. It's so, so beautiful out there and there's yeah. so much space. <laughs> it's delightful. Yeah. The Heritage Harvest Festival is one of uh, the things that I am really proud of. You know, we live near Monticello and there, the whole thing of our colonial history is a mixed bag for a person of color. Yeah. But it, it happened that the time when I was interested in doing some outreach project with Monticello, they were interested in including the story of the whole plantation, uh, the fact that enslaved people were the ones who built this, that Mr. Jefferson bought food from the enslaved people in order to have the varied produce come to table all year round. Mm-hmm. And he, because he was an invertible record keeper, there are records of what the, of those people, their names, and they existed and that the Thomas Jefferson Foundation is, you know, uncovering that part of the history made it seem like a good fit for me with making more people more aware that heirlooms are not just from Europe, that the American cuisine was a collision of vegetables that came from South and Central America up into the northern parts of the Americas, things that came over from Africa skills of African people, and also varieties that came from Europe. Those Europeans, without the varieties of vegetables and the knowledge of the indigenous people, would not even have survived in those early days. Right. And uh, speaking of when I was at the Heritage Harvest Festival, I listened to Michael Twitty speak, and we were under a tent, and there wasn't a dry eye under that tent because he was talking about how that space is this coalition of all those different cultures come together and the food is very specific regionally uh, to that to that area and it was great I just adored my time there the classes that I took there everything about it was great and and I'm so grateful that you put it on. I also, I've never gotten a chance to do it, but the Monticello also has an app. It's like a guided tour that takes you <laughs> yeah. through all of the, it's, you know, cause it, they make a point of saying there were 607 enslaved people who lived on the property and were worked on the property. And there's the, this app that's like this guided tour through that whole piece of the estate and, and all where they lived, where they work, the tools they use, the kitchens they cooked in, everything like that. So I felt like that's a thing everyone needs to see if they go. I watched recently, I watched a talk on video with Michael Twitty that you hosted for the Culinary Breeding Network about the Heirloom Collard Project, which was, it was a collaboration between Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, Seed Seed Savers Exchange, and two other organizations called Working Food and the Utopian Seed Project, if I'm not mistaken. I found it fascinating, especially the fact that you can turn a camera on Michael Twitty and not blink for an hour and he can just talk without notes. I'm uh, fascinated (laughs) by him. I love everything about him and he's wonderful. But I want to talk to you about this program, the Heirloom Collard Project. What is this and what is it about? Well, uh, how I came to be involved with the Heirloom Collard Project is two cultural geographers, Davis and Morgan wrote a book called Collards, a Southern Tradition from Seed to Table. And when that book was coming out, Ed Davis reached out to me about 
being involved in the Heritage Harvest Festival. And this was in the winter. And I happened to be going to Charleston, South Carolina for a garden writers conference. And one of their co-conspirators, Mark Farnham, was at the USDA ARAC, uh, where they have demonstration gardens and do research and so forth. And he had a trial of 60 of the 90 different heirloom collards that Davis and Morgan had collected uh, in the 90s. And I was in love. I mean, I like collards. I never knew that there were shiny ones and curly ones and purple ones and, you know, ones that had little variegated edges that looked more like kale. It was amazing. And Mark said, you know, we put samples of all of these in the USDA gene bank, and you as a citizen scientist are able to ask for withdrawals. So I reached out to our friends at the Seed Savers Exchange because, uh, as I said in the beginning, I was a member of that even before we had started Southern Exposure Seed Exchange. And we reached out to the USDA and got all these varieties. And that was maybe seven years ago. And we trialed as many of them as we could at our farm here in Mineral, Virginia. That's Acorn Community Farm. And at the Sea Tavers Exchange and their extensive gardens. And we also started to regenerate some of the varieties. And we set up heirloomcollards.org because what we thought is many of these varieties have been saved by one family. And a lot of times the person who was saving them was an older person. I mean, I'm 72 and they may, they were older than me. So they were not exactly going to keep gardening forever. Mm -hmm. uh, so we set up this website where you can go and meet the collards. Should do so, I love that. Oh my God. I just, it's, it's so cute. And I, I completely fell in love with everything I saw. Go ahead. Continue. I interrupt. Uh, so <laughs> uh, well, it's okay. So, uh, so we've been working on regenerating and increasing these seeds and offering them both on the exchange, which is a peer-to-peer -peer exchange part of the Seed Savers Exchange, and also offering more of these varieties in both the Southern Exposure Catalog and the Seed Savers Exchange Catalog, because we don't want this genetic diversity in our food system, especially one of the truly American vegetables. I mean, collards were developed after Europeans came to the Americas. And we think that a part of why they, they did well here in the South, but they appealed to the traditional uh, eating of leafy greens that enslaved African people brought when they were working both in the fields and in the kitchens of colonial America. Yeah, and I love the, the website particularly has stories, you know, of where they came from, where each of these collards came from. I plan to plant Nancy Malone wheat purple collard. Oh, that's my favorite. Uh, I love it. It's gorgeous. I'm a sucker for anything purple. So I was like, well, that's my collard green. And I don't even really grow collard greens. And like you, I also didn't know there were, you know, everyone, when you go to the nursery, there's like one kind of collard. That's it. Yeah. You know? And so to see that there's 
more than two, <laughs> but not just more than two, like 90. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Very impressive. Uh, so do you, I'm curious, do you have any, any special tips for growing collards? Cause, or maybe we should hold that until mm -hmm. the end. I'm going to hold on to that. We'll come back okay. to that. Uh, okay. Cause I, cause I also want to know being that you're a well-known educator of seed saving and, and a lot of people started gardening during the pandemic. They're hungry to learn things about gardening, but I also think it's really important for them to learn about seed saving. So where do you suggest, a oh wise lady, uh, <laughs> that people start on their journey to seed saving? Well, for many people, the gateway into seed saving is tomatoes because they're self-pollinating largely. Although those heirloom ones, you have to be a little careful with. They sometimes can be quite promiscuous. <laughs> so you, you have to give them a little bit more space apart. Mm. But fortunately, because they are self-pollinating, you can take a piece you know, of leftover row cover, like the spun polyester reme or one of those things, mm -hmm. and just cover it for a couple of days until that little cluster of tomatoes are pollinated. And then tie a big old red or orange piece of string or rope. We use yarn because it's so convenient. And then you know that this one didn't have a chance to be pollinated by anything but itself. And we, when we're doing bulk uh, seed saving, we ferment it. But you don't actually even have to do that. When I first did this as a, you know, a young woman, I would smear the seeds onto a napkin and let that dry and then put that in a glass jar, and it has a name written on the napkin. And then I take those little pieces apart and plant them. But there's lots of information, like on our website, southernexposure.com, about how to save seeds of, of tomatoes. And there are just so many tomatoes, so little time. You really want to, <laughs> uh, you know, try them all. And th I another thing that's easy is beans. Because beans are self-pollinating as well, and they just dry in the pot, and then they rattle when they're ready to be picked. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's funny you should mention that you did not ferment your tomato seeds originally. I have a couple of clients, they're older clients, who would just you know kind of squeeze the tomato juice and seeds onto a paper towel and then throw the paper towel in the freezer, you know, fold it up and keep it in the freezer until they wanted to plant the seeds next year, and then they plant the paper towel. And that was it. <laughs> kind of weird, but it works. Yeah, it is. It, you know, uh, that, that gives you an idea that it's pretty easy. You do yeah. have to make sure that the tomato seeds have dried before you freeze them. Because if you freeze them, you know, when they're uh, full of moisture, they'll burst. <laughs> right. To change the subject a little bit, uh, Southern Exposure Seed Exchange has one of the best selections of sweet potato slips around. And I have a personal burning question that I've been dying to ask you. Most seed companies cannot or will not ship sweet potato slips to California. And I'm always assuming that it's because they're in the morning glory family and that's an invasive species. So we don't allow it here into California, but you have somehow been able to ship them here how and what loophole have you found well it's what keeps seeds from most of the big producers of sweet potatoes from coming into california is a sweet potato weevil there's a quarantine for sweet potato weevil mm -hmm. which uh, can be a devastating disease and lots of commercial sweet potatoes are grown in california and the states like Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, 
Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Tennessee, all are big commercial producers, and they're not allowed to uh, bring in uh, sweet potato slips for the home garden. I think you can actually have sweet potatoes themselves uh, inspected and approved and come in, but it's a whole trip. We, because in our state, not so many are grown commercially, are not in that quarantine. We only have to have an inspection of the packages. And so we have, you know, signed a thing that says, your California inspectors can tear apart any of our packages they feel like and look at them and make sure that they never find any sweet potato weevils. And so far, so good. And Sand Hill Preservation Center, which is in Iowa, also is able to uh, sell them for that same reason. That's but right. originally we had to send samples and do all these things to be allowed. I'm so grateful that Southern Exposure Seed Exchange has a weevil-free situation. And, and Sand Hill, I've checked out their website too and sent a few clients there. They have an extraordinary selection. It's just like the collars. I had no idea there were that many different varieties available. So it's fun to grow. And, and here in Los Angeles, well, in Southern California anyway, our sweet potatoes come back year after year. So you'll be oh. happy to know. So six years ago, I planted sweet potato slips in a four by four raised bed and they come back every year. I've never had to replant them. So I've still got your, your sweet potatoes growing <laughs> in my garden <laughs> six years well, later. I, I, knew, I knew that they were perennial, but I didn't know that they were perennial as far north as California. Well, there yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, so we, yeah, we've, I've been benefiting from that purchase for a long time now. But I, I'm going to have to replant at some point. I know that that's coming. But okay, now you mentioned as part of an email you sent me that the, the mission of Southern Exposure Seed Exchange includes promoting inclusive food systems. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, I mean, we sort of have intimated just when we talk about the situation with enslaved African people contributing to food in the Americas and the way things are written, you wouldn't have thought that until recent years. Right. Uh, and so what we realize is America is a mosaic. There are people from all kinds of different countries who've come here. And sometimes when you look at heirlooms, it's as if everything originated in Europe. Mm -hmm. And so we are trying to point out that our, our foods are the mix of people who are part of the Americas. Tell those stories because... You know, I, I I laugh when I realize that some, you know, 10 years ago that most of the stories I knew didn't include black and brown people. So we're working on, you know, reminding people that many things like corn, you know, Floriani Flint went from South America to Europe, stayed there and visited and changed a while and came back. It didn't just originate, you know, in Italy. Mm -hmm. Um and so we try to tell those stories a bit more fully. We try to introduce, you know, unusual greens that are more commonly eaten in Africa or Asia. We try to tell also the story of the farmers to let people know they're farmers from, you know, all different cultures who are providing the seeds that they get to eat. So it is not only sharing the seeds and the food, 
but the stories, the cultures, the times that they represent. That sounds like really important work. So thank you for doing that. It's pretty fun too. Yeah, I was, <laughs> was going to say, I'd love to dig into that. Uh, well, it is tip time. And this is maybe where we can possibly talk about collards again. But uh, do you have a favorite tip that you would like to share with the Garden Nerd audience? Okay, well, I will say my favorite thing to say to people who live in warmer areas, which a lot of your people do, and I, certainly my customers, is summer planting for fall and winter harvest. It's very hard to think about your cool season crops in the last days of August or the heat of September. But it is by start getting your beds ready and starting things in the shade and having them ready for the first cool days to transplant with rains that we have here in Virginia in the fall, that you are able to have a large outdoor refrigerator uh, food <laughs> ready to harvest every day throughout the winter. I agree. I am the biggest fan of fall gardens. And I, there's so many people who just shut down their garden in fall here, and it's just not the right thing. So you, so you plant, you plant in August or September? We start in August and September, and we continue planting through October for harvest throughout the fall. We say the big point is to have all these greens and wonderful fresh things from the garden at, during the holidays right. and then to continue on through the hungry days of April. I mean, nowadays we can get stuff from Mexico, but before that, it, well, the selection markets uh, were not so great. <laughs> right. You had to plan for it. Yeah. We, you know, we used to plant in September here and then it was October and now October is still so hot. We don't really plant our fall stuff until November, but we are starting, like I start all my brassicas indoors under grow lights in October, late September, early October, and then plant them out as soon as the 10 day forecast is showing temperatures under 73 degrees. So it's, it's, um, but it's the best growing season because there's fewer bugs. You get rain maybe here, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, it's such a, it's just the best time to grow. So if, especially if you have a, you know, if you think you have a black thumb, it really yeah. is the best time to grow. I'm going to ask you a follow-up question, a follow-up tip about growing collards. Do you have any mm-hmm. special f- tricks for growing collards? In well, your the best collards are started in the fall and grown over winter. When you, as you said, there's less bugs, mm-hmm. insect pressure, it's cooler. So a tip would be, you know, start them in September or October and put them out as soon as you say it's uh, some cool days uh, being predicted. I use floating row cover if the bugs are still crazy and rampant until they're, we say, juveniles and able to fend for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. And you know, when you just ask about collards, I want to encourage people to try some of these new ones, like, you know, the Nancy Malone, or Whaley's favorite, or Alabama Blue. Since you say you like purple, that's another purple one. Yes. Uh, yeah, and expand your horizons. Because here's the thing about your winter collards, is they're more tender and quick cooking. So you don't have to go the old style. You can roll... You can put up like six leaves together, roll them up like a cigar, chef and them, and them in less than 10 minutes with a little garlic. Oh, my. <laughs> 
Sounds delightful. Well, I'm certainly going to be adding those to my garden. Uh, it, it sucks because I I can't I don't have enough beds to rotate all of my brassicas. I love it's my favorite plant family. So I'm always growing, mm-hmm. you know, broccoli, kohlrabi, uh, kale is my I grow 16 varieties of kale. So I'm like, okay, now we're moving into collards. I'm going to need another bed. So uh, sky's the limit. Well. Thank you. Thank you so, so much, Ira, for being a guest on the tip of the week podcast. How do people find you and all the good things that you know? Well, our home is southernexposure.com. You can come there. We have all the varieties. We have growing guides. We have seed saving guides. We have lovely pictures. And you can uh, also find us at Southern Exposure Seed. Uh, on Instagram and uh, Facebook. And we have a newsletter you can sign up for online. And if you want to know all about the collards, don't forget Heirloom Collards, which is a cooperative effort. And that that was heirloomcollards.org. Yes, absolutely. And there's also some YouTube videos, right? Oh, there are many. There are many YouTube videos. We keep thinking someday we're going to make a stage, a YouTube channel of our own. But we're on a lot of the Culinary Breeding Network ones. On ones I've been videoed at Sea Tivers Exchange. The a lot of the uh, sustainable ag conferences here in the southeast. We are often wanting to share. And who knows? Maybe we'll, as I say, make a channel of our own soon. Oh, and I would watch that for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we had fun. We took over the Instagram feed of Garden and Guns, <laughs> crazy <laughs> magazine with beautiful uh, pictures, and they. I was happy that they highlighted our college. It was so fun. Oh, cool. Well, all right, garden nerds, you'll find a link to Southern Exposure Seed Exchange and all of Ira's books on gardennerd.com this week. We'll also post a link to the Heirloom Collard Project so you can meet the collards. And we'll include all their social media feeds and the other goodies that we just talked about. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under Garden Nerd One, on Facebook as GardenNerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening.